you can learn a lot about a man by simply knowing his name, especially his surname, his last name. And this one I'm about to say may not be politically correct, but it's still true. Consider a man whose name is Garcia or Rodriguez. Probably said that wrong. You know something about them, right? Most likely they have some kind of Spanish background somewhere down there. Or consider a, a last name or a man's last name who's Wang or Lee. Again, it's pretty safe to assume that they have an Asian background. Well, consider our pastor, Pastor Neil Jackson. I decided to Google your last name to see if I can find out some things about you. So here's what I found. It says that your last name, Jackson, the name originated between the borders of England and Scotland. Jack is a pet name for John, and son, of course, refers to the son of Jack, i.e. the son of John. So if Google is right, Pastor Neil, you're probably related to someone named John about 800 years ago in the British Isle. Now you can tell me after this sermon if I'm anywhere correct. But the point is that you can learn a lot about a person just by simply knowing their name. You can learn a lot about their history. But one thing that you cannot learn about a person is their destiny. You can learn where they have come from, but you cannot learn where they are going. Because the only way we can discover where someone is going is not whether they have Spanish or Asian or they're related to some guy named John in the British Isle, but what they do with this man, Jesus Christ. What is their creed? What is their belief? What is their faith? In light of that, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to look at verse 1 through 3. So 1 John chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 3. Here's what God's word says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So our text here in 1 John verse 1 begins with, see what kind of love the Father has given unto us. What John does is he steps back and he thinks about who he is. Well, more importantly, he thinks about who he was, where he came from, and what he used to do, and what he used to be. And in light of that, he considers the fact that where he was and where had God has now brought him, and he considers how much love that reflects upon God. Where he used to be, and now where God has brought him, and how that shows the greatness of God's love for him. So let's do that. Let's look back at where we were and what we used to do, and then stand amazed at the God who has taken us from that spot and crowned us with glory and honor and made us his children. So we can see that, we can look back at our own lives, we can all reflect upon that, or we can consider also what the Word of God says about each and every one of us. Some of you, I think many of you, if not most of you, were saved as very young children. But nonetheless, what we're going to read in these passages are descriptions of who you were before that, and who you would have been if God would not have saved you. And for those of you who've had the pleasure or displeasure of being converted as an older person, you can look at these passages and see exactly who you were before God saved you. 
So consider the word of God of who we were before God saved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you were dead in trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So who were we? We were people who were dead in trespasses and sins, that we lived and breathed it. We once walked following exactly how the world followed, exactly what the world thought was good, we thought were good, exactly what the world valued, we valued. We followed the devil, sons of disobedience. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We were driven by our own desires for pleasure and what our carnal desires pushed us. And the hostility was not just in our bodies, but also in our minds. Our minds were in agreement with the world, the devil, and the flesh. We were evil like the rest of mankind. Romans 3 describes another picture of the lost man, the one who you were rescued from. Romans chapter 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. None seek after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is our condition under the law. This is our condition before we have been saved. We have no fear of God before our eyes. We have murderous hearts. Our past is nothing but ruin and misery. That's definitely true of me. Their mouths were full of cursing and bitterness. They do not do good. They do not do righteous. They do not understand spiritual things, and they refuse to seek after God, despite the fact that God has clearly revealed himself in natural revelation and in the word of God. And yet, instead of submitting and repenting, they run away from him. And so what do we all deserve? Because we are all God-haters, murderers in heart, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, people who refuse to fear the Lord. But Romans 6, 26 says the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to be executed. We deserve to die. And of course here, death refers to the second death, which is the lake of fire, which is where the wicked will drink the full cup of God's wrath and where the devil is described in Revelation 20.10 as being tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be executed, be sent straight to hell, and condemned. But God doesn't do that, does he? He didn't execute you. He didn't... Lord willing, he's not going to send you to hell. He's Lord willing that you have converted and believed and trusted in him. So what does he do to the person who's dead in their trespasses? Ephesians 2.4 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God took the dead and made it alive. He took that which was unlovely and he made it lovely. He took a child of wrath and he made him a child of mercy. He took a child of the devil and made him a child of God. I want you to think about that. What amazing grace is this? We talk about amazing grace, right? That beautiful song, Amazing Grace. What amazing grace is this? God took a son of the devil and made him his own. Who would have thought that? Who would have ever imagined that an enemy would be made his friend? But that's exactly what he does, and that's exactly what 1 John is wrestling with. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Why is John amazed about this love 
that God has given to us. See, I think a lot of people, especially in our world, can't understand this. They can't stand back and be amazed. Of course God would love us. We're children of God. But that's not true. People always think that everyone is a child of God, but the Bible describes the exact opposite. People are born children of wrath, children of the devil. What's amazing is the fact that we who were once enemies have been made friends. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of the Father, that we should be made children of God, saving sinners like us. Now, what's interesting, if you think about this, is what this means is the more wicked we were, the more grace God gets for saving us. See, if we're really good chaps and good people, then saving us would not be nearly as glorious as saving us from the conditions that we've seen ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3. Now, does this mean that we should sin so that grace may abound? We should just go live in the world? That way we've got better testimonies? So we talk about how great God saved us? No, of course not. But what it does still mean, though, is the fact of the matter is, the more we see who we were and how wicked we were, the more we can praise God. This is why the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. God saved us despite of us. And I want you to consider this, that not only does God save us, but he elevates us to the highest position possible. What higher position is there than being a son of God? There's no higher position. It would be nice to simply just be saved, to be rescued from the condition that we saw in Ephesians 2 and Romans chapter 3. But God goes a step beyond that. He doesn't just save us, but he rescues us and makes us his own son. I think about the psalmist in Psalm 84.10, which says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand years elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's how I feel, right? That we would rather, hopefully you all agree with me here, that we'd rather be a janitor in heaven than to be a king among the wicked. Because that's how good heaven is. If God would just simply let us in, that would be good enough, right? But he does so much more than that. He takes us and makes them his child. I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the difference between the person that's the highest saint in heaven and the person in hell that receives the least amount of punishment. And to explain that thought experiment, you have to first have the right theology and understanding about positions in heaven. So everybody who believes in Jesus Christ will be in heaven. We all believe that, right? Hopefully we all know that. If you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you have little faith or much faith, you will be in the kingdom of God. But the Bible also teaches that every single thing that you do, you will be judged. And there's the judgment seat of Christ, and you have the wood, hay, and stubble, and you have the gold, silver, and the precious jewels, and the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up, but the precious jewels will remain. And we'll be judged by everything we do, and we'll be rewarded by the good things that we have done. And the same thing is also true about hell. If your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, if you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. Whether you're Mother Teresa or Hitler, you're still both going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Right? It doesn't matter. You could be the most righteous unbeliever in the world, whatever that even looks like. You'll still end up in hell if you do not trust in Jesus because the wage of sin is death, no matter how many sins you have committed. And this is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty six when he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will give account for every careless word you speak. Every single one. Every single word that you ever speak, you will be judged 
If you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, you will not lose your reward. And if you're an unbeliever and you speak careless words, even those words, you will be judged. What this means is, in the final analysis, there will be people in hell who receive greater punishment than other people. And so there will be people in heaven that receive greater rewards. Now, we can get lost in speculation. We're not told exactly what those rewards or punishments are, but we don't really need to know. We just need to know that they are there, right? And this is also the principle Jesus talks about, that some will be beaten with many stripes and some will be beaten with few stripes. So here's what I want to compare. The person in heaven, maybe it's Paul, who knows? The person in heaven that worked the hardest for the Lord, that sacrificed the most for the Lord, that has the greatest rewards, the highest in the kingdom, we want to think of it that way, and the person in hell that did the least amount of evil. And the difference between those two, and what I'd argue is, the difference between those two individuals is, excuse me, back up. The difference between the person in heaven who has the greatest amount of rewards and the person in heaven who has the least amount of rewards, the difference between that is so much smaller than the person in hell with the least amount of punishment and the person in heaven with the least amount of rewards. In other words, as Jesus says, what is again a man? What is a profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Hell is horrible. To miss out on heaven is the worst possibility. There's nothing worse than this. And there's nothing better just to make it to heaven. That's the point I'm trying to make with that thought experiment. Just making it there is so great. And we should praise him. We should praise him just like the prodigal son. When he came to his own senses, what did he say? Maybe perhaps he would just take me back as a servant. After all I've done, maybe he'll just let me be a servant. For it's better to be a servant in his house than eat with the pigs out here. And of course, the father, what he does is says, no. I'm going to restore you and make you once again a son. That is the love that we see in First John. See what matter of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I love that last phrase, and so we are. He confirms this reality. It's not just that we're called that. It's not religious language. It's not just flowery talk, but it's reality. You really are a son of God. That is who your true identity is. And so as you look at yourself in the mirror and see your imperfections and see your sin and see your struggles and see everything that you don't like about you, right? I want you to also see the fact that you are currently now a son of God. And that should be your identity. That is who you really are. You're not the failure that you think you are. Well, you're also maybe not the hot stuff that you think you are. The reality is you're a son of God. That's your true identity. That's what makes you valuable in the end. Notice also that there's this already not yet reality about being a son of God. Not only are we currently sons of God, but there's a sense that we will also become sons of God. There's an already not yet reality. And we can see that if we were to turn over to Romans chapter 8, it talks about the fact that we have a spirit of adoption that we currently have been given. And yet there's a future reality, the adop- that creation, and we ourselves long for, which is the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. So there's an already not yet reality. There's a sense that we are children of God, and there's a sense that we yet are waiting to become full-on children of God. And it's this reality that we have been transferred from darkness to light and become children of God that we see in verse 2. It says, this is the reason why the world does not know us, for it did not know him. The world does not know us because we are not ultimately from this world. We have been born again. We have been born from above. 
And so the world will hate us because it hated him. It rejected God and rejects his children. This is why Jesus warns us and he tells us, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We should expect trials and tribulations in this world. But as we go through trials and tribulations, we need to continue to remember our destiny. Where are we headed? Why are we doing this? Why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to be rejected and scoffed at by the world? Because we are headed to the celestial city. As you think about that great book of Pilgrim's Progress, as he's going down in the journey of traveling to the celestial city, he's warned. Worldly wise man tells them that this is a terrible path, and in your path there's going to be full of dangers and lions and goblins and ghouls and all of these things, which were actually true. Worldly wise man was correct, but Pilgrim Christian did not listen to worldly wise man because he knew that beyond all of that, there was that great celestial city. And that's where we're headed. We can go through this tribulation. We can go through the rejection of the world. And in the words of Romans 8, 36, for all day long we are being killed and regarded as sleep to, as sheep to be slaughtered. We can do that. We can, we can go through this because we know that the kingdom of God is on the other side. But we do need to brace ourselves. Brace ourselves for the fact that these days of peace and prosperity, these days where we're not being persecuted, these days where we can come into this church without being attacked, or at least ridiculed, may not last. These are good days. The fact of the matter is, some of you may not, and some of even myself, may not lie down our gray hairs in peace because the Lord hates us and it rejects us. But we don't know the future. We just know today's good days. And whether we lay our gray hairs down in peace or not is not for us to know. But for us, we need to serve the Lord in any circumstance. And anyway, we're just called to do the next right thing. And that's why Paul has told us that he has learned the secret to contentment. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any circumstance, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The God who redeemed us, the God who made us his child, is also the God who is going to get us through verse 2. The reason why the world hates us and does not know us is he's going to hold us fast throughout all of this. Let's look at the next portion of our passage. He says that we do not, we are children of God now, but we do not know, but we know that, excuse me, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, is that not already not yet reality? We're a child of God now, but there's this future reality that's going to happen at the second coming that has not yet appeared, that has not yet been revealed, and that's what we will be like. We don't know exactly what we will be like, but we do know that whatever that is, that we will be like him. Now, I find this to be quite remarkable, to be honest. This statement, this verse, is a remarkable verse, and the reason is I never really hear this idea in our Christian churches. I never really hear this idea that the future state of the believer is yet unknown. We often talk about heaven being unknown, right? Eye has not seen, ears not hear the wonderful things that the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And the idea is that we don't really know what heaven, more accurately, the new heavens and new earth will be like. Will there be dinosaurs there? 
Will there be water there? Will we be able to fly? These, we, we often think about those kind of things. We don't, and we don't know that, by the way. We only know glimpses of the description of the new heavens and new earth. But I find something quite remarkable about this text. It is not just saying that the new earth is unknown. But it's saying what we will be is yet unknown. Now, I think the reason why people are afraid to exegete this passage or really talk about this subject is because they're afraid of becoming blasphemous. They're afraid to get lost in a doctrine called theosis, this idea that we will become gods. Nothing in our text suggests that we will become gods. We will always be finite. He will be infinite. And they're also afraid to be lost in speculation. But nonetheless, the text says what it says. We don't want to be blasphemous. We're never becoming a god. And we don't want to be lost in speculation. But we do want to consider the fact that it says what we will be has not yet appeared. Again, I find this amazing. Now, a lot of people think they know exactly what the glorified body will be. Here's the reasoning. Because we're talking about the glorified body. This is what we're talking about, right? We're going to get a glorified body, but we don't know exactly what that glorified body will be. And a lot of people reason like this. No, we know exactly what the glorified body will be. It'll be exactly like this one. Just a little bit better. And they reason like this. Well, we have already seen an appearance of a glorified body, which is Jesus and his resurrection appearances. And so Jesus' resurrected appearances look seemingly just like basically a normal man, and so we will look like a normal man. I think the problem with this reasoning is John had already seen Jesus' glorified body. And so if John agreed with that reasoning, then it would seem that John would know exactly what we would look like. But John says he, he doesn't know exactly what he would look like because he's waiting to see what Christ will look back look like when he comes back and will be transformed into that image. So I will argue that I think that we will actually more likely probably look like a glorified Christ, not just what his appearances on earth look like. In other words, what I'm arguing is I think that Christ, while he certainly, of course, had a physical body, his full glory when he made his earthly appearances were veiled, and that there's a fuller glory that is to be revealed and yet to be seen, which we will see at his second coming. And it's that image that we will be fully transformed into. A, a human body, absolutely, but a glorified human body, which exactly what it looks like is yet to be unknown. And we can see this kind of idea, I think hinted at, at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see Jesus transformed before us and in his glorious state. But interesting enough, why don't you turn over to Matthew chapter 16, and we will take a look at the Mount of Transfiguration and take a look at this glorified state of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 16, if you look at verse 27, while you go there, I'll read the parallel passage from Mark chapter 13, verse 26. Mark chapter 13, verse 26 says this, and, they, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So we know that the appearance of Jesus when he comes back is going to be in a glorified state because he's described as coming back with great power and glory. In Matthew, 20, in Matthew 16, verse 27, the parallel account, it says this, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Once again, this is talking about the glorious return of Jesus Christ in his glorified state. Now, the thing that I want to point your attention to is notice that he's coming in the glory of his Father. This is, once again, a glorified 
Jesus that we will see. The other thing I want you to think about is this. Jesus is going to come with his angels. If you go into the Bible, when angels are described, they're always described as this glorious being that people, when they encounter, are so terrified when they see that they nearly fall down dead. Now, I just want you to think about this. Is it likely that when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes back, that the angels will be more glorious than him? I think the answer is obviously not. Obviously, Jesus will be the most glorious of all because he's coming in the glory of his Father. But it's not just that. If you continue to read in Matthew chapter 16, look down to verse 28, right after this. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is a somewhat cryptic passage that is somewhat challenging, right? Because he's saying to the people of that day that there are some standing here that he's currently talking to that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But, of course, the second coming came significantly later. Well, we flip over one page to Matthew 17. We get a hint. Many commentators would agree that we get a hint of what Jesus is saying here, the the solution to this conundrum. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, right after this statement, we read this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So many, many commentators have seen a connection between verse 28 and what happened six days later. Notice the verbal connection. He said it six days later. Some of the people that were standing with him saw Jesus transfigured before them, and his face shone like a sun, and his clothes became bright as light. So I'm arguing that there is a definite connection between this statement that they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and this picture of glorified Jesus. And this picture of glorified Jesus, I think, is a foretaste of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back in his Father's glory and comes back in glory and in power. So we don't know exactly, and even at this point, by the way, Jesus when he transfigured before them, at this point, may have still been veiled, even so. Because the full glory of Jesus may have just evaporated James and John and the disciples. If they would have seen the fullness of his glory, they might have simply died, and he might have even been veiled at this point. But this seems to be the glorified state that seems like this will probably be something similar to what Jesus Christ looks like when he comes back. Now, why is that all important? Remember what John said. When we see him... We will be like him. So if he is in this glorious state when he comes back and we see him in that state, what would that mean about us? We will be in that glorified state. Now, some of you might be thinking, should we be seeking glory? Right. Shouldn't we just be humble people? Right. Uh, That's true. We shouldn't be seeking glory. But there is a sense, though, that there is a biblical principle that is actually good to seek glory if that glory comes from God. And we see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. It says this. This is, talking about, this is talking about God and two types of people. Those who are going to hell and those who are going to heaven. Here's what it says. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who are patient in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So there's two types of people. 
right? Those who, are, who in well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality in God, he will give those people eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, they don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they'll go to hell. They receive wrath and fury. So there is a sense that we should be seeking glory, honor, and immortality. And that is found in Christ. The glory should not be, I'm trying to be the richest man in the world. I'm trying to be the prettiest girl in town. I'm trying to be this or that. That is self-seeking, and that is the type of people that are going to hell. But the people that are seeking God's glory that he will give to his people, that is good and righteous and pure. John tells us this because it should excite our hearts to think, I will be a glorified person. God will give me this glory. Yes, he will. This is your destiny if you have been found in Jesus Christ. We're running out of time. Let me give you two other places that you might be interested to see this idea of a glorified Jesus. One will be in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 has an appearance of the glorified Jesus, right? This is post his resurrection. This is in him in his glory in heaven. And it describes him in this way. He says his hairs on his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like bronish, burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hands are seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Now, there's a lot there, but I just want to point you to his voice. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Powerful, majestic, overwhelming voice of the glorified Jesus. And look at his face. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the glorified Jesus. One last passage that you might be interested in getting hints at what the glorified Jesus looks like. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You might want to turn there real quick in the little time we have. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I'm in verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. See that? What's sown, this body, is parallel to a bare kernel, and what will be is parallel to perhaps wheat or some other grain. So I think what's going on here is that it's saying that, it's an analogy, that just as a bare kernel resembles or doesn't resemble some wheat, so our unglorified state is going to be radically different than our glorified state. Now look down to verse 42. Again, this does not mean that we won't have eyes and arms and legs. Some we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that our glorified state will be so much greater than what we have now. And we get a hint of that in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that's our body now, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. Now, Now look at verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, 
so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have bore the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Again, these are glorious truths that we have in our scriptures. Again, we do not, John did not know, I do not claim to know what all of this means, but I do know this. When Jesus says, when the Bible says that we will be glorified, we will be glorified. And as John says here, we will be transformed into the image of him. And this excites me. And I hope it excites you to think about, this is my destiny. This is who I will be. I don't even know what I will be, but whatever it will be, it'll be just like him. With one caveat. As much as we can be transformed into him. Because again, the finite can never become infinite. Man can never become God. But we will be like him as much as we can be like him. Let's conclude with verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is our hope. That we will be like him. And this hope is what purifies us. Just as he is pure. This is our destiny. This is our hope. This is what you will be. And I just pray that all of you will one day know the full meaning of this passage and what your glorious destiny is in Christ Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you have given us these wonderful truths, that you have told us things that we can't even possibly understand. We hear this word being glorified, but we don't even know what that is, Lord. You just tell us that it's something great and something amazing and something as similar as a kernel is to a plant of wheat. Lord, we pray that everyone here would come and taste and see that the Lord is good and one day that they would be transformed and they would experience this glorious resurrection, this glorious glorification that we receive immortality and, and power and that which is sown perishable will become imperishable, Lord. We want, we want this and we long to get it in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.